Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Automate It, our weekly podcast where we talk robots and how to build them. I, of course, am Stefan Seltz-Oxmacher, the world's most handsome, best-looking CEO of a robotics company who takes no care of himself. And with me is someone whose hair is even more well put together this morning than that or this afternoon than mine is. I like to measure it in terms of poof factor. <laughs> so basically today's Valentine's Day. So poof factor is high. I mean, that's what our significant others like. They like a nice, loose, not well put together haircut that shows that the care you don't take care of yourself, you know, they probably also won't get from you. Definitely goes into the robots. So again, this is Automated, the weekly podcast from Polymath Robotics, where we talk about how to build different robots and the fun challenges therein. We have two sections of this show. The first is where we play a little game for the first 15 minutes or so, where we spitball through inventing a robot. And the second is where we talk about an issue in robotics or a challenge in robotics. And this week, we're going to talk about all of the fun and easiness that can happen when you do a live demo of a robot which is to say it'll be a short section because robots always work perfectly and nothing ever goes wrong when you're doing anything with them. Absolutely. I mean, that's why everybody just loves robots because they just <laughs> commit no faults. Yep. They're, robots are the apple of the hardware world. So with that being said, again, we'll play our, our game to start off with. And this game, I like to, I like to say it, it simulates what it's like to, to start a robotics company. You have somebody who has a strong bias towards or against a particular piece of technology and another who has a, a strong bias towards applying that technology in some sort of setting. And Ilya, what setting are we uh, working with today? Yeah, so let me pick one randomly here. We're going to work on transportation. Transportation. Transportation is the setting for our, our theoretical <laughs> that robot. It seems like a rather broad That's topic. the fun of it transportation and how about this vr oh perfect yeah so vr robot for transportation yep okay well that sounds a lot like the telepresence robot that we we previously did no 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 we're gonna go a different direction okay so what you want is you want vr to transport you to another world right that's not really transportation though no it's transportation it's bringing you to another universe it's not right physic- i feel i feel like transportation definitionally means things am, are physically moving i'm sticking with my interpretation and what it's doing is this robot needs to give you force feedback on your vr world so this is a robot that actually is kind of an exoskeleton oh. keeping you contained okay. while you move around well this VR is space. this is convenient because as you know because i've talked about it incessantly this weekend, I read The Three-Body Problem. A big part of it is a V-suit that gives like haptic and temperature feedback on the VR world. And it's Bingo. funny, my, 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 my general thesis on this book is that it was really interesting and hard to put down, but not all that well written. And the V-suit was not really necessary to the, the plot, outside the fact that this virtual world changed temperatures. So regardless, we're, we're thinking about a full exoskeleton robot for VR. For VR. And it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be an exoskeleton. Like, you know, everybody always in sci-fi makes it as a suit, like Ready Player One. Robert or Heinlein body. told me that was the best way to go. Exactly. But if it's a if it's a home-based machine, I could imagine it more like a pod with manipulators around it, right? Like like it's a sphere that you step into, like a giant hamster ball, basically, right? Because <laughs> there's there's three problems you need to do, mm-hmm. basically, right? One is you need to get the ability for people to run or walk or stand. So yep. it's some sort of treadmill yep. or, or sit even, right? 
And the other thing you need to do is provide resistance to their hands for a sword yep. or a magic wand or whatever game they're playing, right? You know, you know what's an interesting thought? Rather than use like normal actuators and all that normal fun stuff, why don't we just use inflatable like soft robots? Soft robots, yeah, that's yeah, a, absolutely. So like, if somebody's tapping you on your shoulder in the VR world, they just like balloon out a little prophylactic to tap you on the shoulder, yeah, and it, and it feels like you're actually being tapped on the shoulder. There's there's a lot of work in soft robots around humans because they're they're safer inherently. Mm-hmm. There's a lot less hard metal in them. Not nothing, yeah, right, but but a lot less. The downside with them is they tend to be slow. So that person tapping on the shoulder is gonna tap. Well, I mean, like we could speed up the tap. the course of the soft robot. Like maybe maybe a jet powered. Right. Then you increase pressure and you kind of lose your safety angle. Yeah, it's but like, like you know, I'm exposing a our, person. Listen, to, we're really good at controls engineering. It yeah, will be safe. It'll be safe. Yeah, it won't it won't go too hard. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is you'll hear the onrushing air. If it's really fast, well, you have to have noise canceling headphones as part of your VR as, headset. As part of your obviously, that's oh, that's the first it. part of virtual reality is is noise canceling headphones. This all makes sense, you know. Every time they show Vader coming out of his like little pod, yep, the you always hear that sound, yep. and what that is is that's the air releasing from the VR system. Yep, that's not his life support or anything. No, nope, he's not just at in all. a he's in there playing Beat Saber. So, <laughs> so. Yeah. So you're being transported to other worlds. Are you sure you can't be transported like to a, you know, Tesla humanoid robot that you're teleoperating or something doing something somewhere else? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's also been kind of a dystopia thing is is get people to work machine jobs remotely. Yep. Or I mean, even more interesting than that, you could have humanoid robots in space and they could work, you know, closer to 24 seven because you have VR people teleoperating them. The the problem is. And also in our soft robotic pod, you could better simulate low gravity because the the platform you're standing on could inflate and deflate in accordance to how the robot's actually moving. I think that one you'd probably just do with cables. That's probably easier than inflating mm-hmm. deflating. Just have the person wear a harness mm-hmm. and the cables take up some amount of space. Well, the problem with the harness is then your soft robotic things need to move around it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, I think that's. So, you know, actually what's interesting. So, I mean, I, I think that we've talked about maybe slightly on the podcast, but not, not as much in real in as, as I'd like is, is how you could use robots to do something like colonize the moon and how actually like good mechanics and technicians are going to be more valuable in the should be a higher percentage of the first thousand people on the moon than like dual PhDs in whatever. So you, what you could actually do though, is you could have a lot of these technicians on earth in these VR pods doing minute movements uh, to to fix something you won't do it on earth though because you can't beat the speed of light latency it's about yeah. two seconds to the moon and mm. then two seconds back and as a fun fact surgeons start to struggle above 150 milliseconds of latency yeah so i mean granted rewiring something is not as delicate as open heart surgery but it's not actually <laughs> fine motor less. wise it's not that yeah. much less so much more realistic though is you could have people on the hab on the moon Yep. In a safe, armored, maybe underground mm-hmm. habitation space, doing above ground work yep. within local proximity. And then your latency could be a few milliseconds. And, and you know what's fine. great about this idea is we finally found a use for humanoid robotics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. wheels might still be better than legs. Yes. But actually, the moon's not going to be that great of a place for wheels in the get go. So I think it's fine. The regolith is variably dense and deep. 
Yeah, but the but the whole Apollo missions had those little amazing fold out buggies that they rode around. Yeah, those but like for for walking around, especially for walking to go, you know, swap out the pipe on this thing, whatever. Legs are gonna be better than than the wheels you could have on a robot. I don't know. At least for like minute navigation. I, I would be willing to make a beer bet. All right, all right. So yeah. this beer bet will pay off in five to fifty years. Yeah, um, probably more like fifty to hundred, but we'll see. Um, yeah. But you could so you could have a, a humanoid robot that you're in a radioactive protect a radiation protective pod underground, and you can do you can be in this pod. With a bunch of soft robotic arms bumping out at you. Yeah. I mean, would soft robots be the best way to simulate, like, here's this pipe, here's this, reach around the back of this and feel that this nut is a little loose and tighten it? I think if you made it small enough. So don't think really, and it might not even be air, actually. Better might actually be fluid, so hydraulics. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you don't run into the compressibility problem. Mm-hmm. But if you had really small capillaries that could give your fingertips a sense of resistance. Yeah. That would actually probably be quite good. So actually, in other words, what would be interesting to enable this is if you could make a a mesh type of system that had like a large number of these little gates that could expand so you can make more capillaries Yeah, yeah, to get a higher degree of resolution than like the, that, that soft robot company that like had the elephant looking like thing, whereas like really just big old pillows. Yeah, uh, walking around exactly, and that's again you 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 run into the the speed problem. But I think with fluid and with enough compression in small spaces, you could probably get it working. I mean, another problem, another interesting challenge with that is since you're assuming your eyes are where the humanoid robot's eyes are, you wouldn't necessarily be able to see around the pipe to notice that the screw's on loose. So you'd actually have to stick your finger out underneath the pipe. There'd have to be a camera on your finger or or some sort of sensor to say like, oh, here's where the nut is. And you could feel that. Touch sensing, yeah. You can definitely do touch sensing today. But like if if you were relying on touch sensing for the robot to form, then you would, then there'd be more delay. Whereas if you could, you know, scan it with a LiDAR, by the time your hand reaches over to feel where that nut is, it could have already formed. And it might be, it might be like for this type of use case, the the best UI for realizing that the nut is not all the way screwed in might actually be touch. Yeah. As opposed to magical computer sees that image of the nut and says, this needs four more tightenings, sir. Well, coming back to your PhD topic, right? You could, you could do, or technician, you could do kind of all sorts of efforts on that. Or if you look at most trucks and things out there, they'll have little painted marks on the nuts Yep. that paint from the nut to the thing that it's attached to. And so you can just visually see if the nut's been unscrewed mm. since installation. So just optically, because, you know, if, if you're on a big site like a oil rig or something, you're not going to go around poking every single nut. You have to visually inspect them and then figure out what to do. Though, with though I suspect in, a, in an environment like the moon, there's going to be lots of general use parts. Yeah. And like things being painted for a specific application is probably not something you get. No, no, not pre-painted at the factory. I'm yeah. talking about like you, you finish putting it together. Yeah. You pull out your marker out of your back pocket. This is the technician approach. Mm. And you just swipe a line across the nut and the pod. I got you. And that's it. So let's go back to our pod. So we know yeah. that the pod is primarily for teleoperation of humanoid robots doing complex, dexterous tasks. Yep. 
On the moon. Yep. <laughs> on the moon or, or could also be underwater. No, I like I like on the moon. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. But, but but could also be underwater. I mean, sure. there's there's very dangerous underwater technician tasks. So like oh, for sure. in underwater nuclear reactor or in the underwater part of a nuclear reactor for an oil rig for whatever, this could be a great way to to power something like that. So in terms of what the robot needs to do, interestingly enough doesn't really need to do that much sensing. No. So so the main thing that this kind of pod for moving humans around needs to do is just make sure that it's not exerting enough force to hurt you. Yeah. So mostly it's pressure or torque or position. Well, and then also arranging itself such that it feels like the world you're looking at on the VR headset. Yeah, but the one does the other. You know what this is a bit like? This is a bit like... In Star Trek, there's like hollow suites or the hollow deck. Right. In in X Men, there's like a simulation room where they'll like practice fighting sentinels or whatever. This is a lot like basically the robot we're building is that. Is that exactly? Yeah. It's, it's that, but realistic. Right? Yeah. So without so, magic hologram hol- holograms that have mass somehow. Exactly. So I think the most the, the coolest thing I've seen is there's an omnidirectional treadmill that companies build out there. Mm-hmm. So imagine a normal treadmill, but the the actual tape on the floor or carpet on the floor that you walk is itself made up of smaller little treadmills the other direction. Yeah. So by varying the speed of these two treadmills, you can get omnidirectional movement in any way. So that that takes care of the walking part. Yeah. And then really what you got to do is you probably but don't actually need to. wonder how big of a deal walking is in the grand scheme of VR. If, yeah. I feel like it's just the easiest thing where you could add more dimensionality than than joysticks and headset i mean if if we pull out from the the moon and underwater case Mm -hmm. a lot of the reason people like vr is potentially to do more physical activity yeah sure right that seems like a great that's so real remember remember when we all played with the wii so much for that like summer and we were all doing fitness and we we're all bowling and then and then you know switch still has that capability and everyone just uses a gamepad you know, you you heard it first. Stefan is a VR fitness bear. Yeah. So if you're investing in local, Inc- there's a few SF VR gyms. Incredibly bearish. Incredibly <laughs> bearish. So yeah. So we need we need actuation to really Let's take expensive headsets. Yeah. And put them on people who are coming transactionally on an hour by hour basis, who then sweat profusely into them <laughs> or, or, be, or better than that, than that, Hey, fitness person, why don't you kind of act like a loner and be sad in your room by yourself? <laughs> you, you didn't buy all that Lululemon to be in your basement. That's right. That's the number one market for it. <laughs> but yeah, so I think, I think your, your VR system really cares Humans, when we're interacting with stuff, we mostly do it with our hands. Yep. I don't think we need to do much pressure sensing on your back or your stomach. Like, I mean, you could right? use like if you're if you're being held up by a harness, you could use your feet as kind of like like move like, like pushing rudders an or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So mostly, what you want to do is the fine dextrous stuff on your hands. Mm-hmm. And the really cool part. So actually, actually, you probably only need a high resolution zone of this in your strike zone. To use a baseball analogy, you probably only really need high resolution haptic feedback from like your knees to your shoulders well so i was maybe i i the the part i was going to get to was if you look at the da vinci surgical system if you ever get a chance to play with it what's really interesting is very quickly this is a robotic system for surgery Mm -hmm. where a surgeon can sit down and and work at a station which then transmits his movements or her movements to a tiny tiny set of tools inserted laparoscopically into a person 
What's really interesting, playing with the system, even for 10 minutes, I started to phantom sense feedback from the system. That's cool. That doesn't exist. Yep. Right. And when I was finished, I asked the person, I was like, how are you guys doing this haptic feedback at such fancy rates? And he said, we don't. <laughs> your, your brain is entirely making it up. Huh. So you like, I was playing with a rubber band in, yep. the, in the thing and trying to get rubber bands onto different little pegs as yep. an experiment. You start to feel tension when there's no tension because huh. your brain kind of correlates Your brain that. does the work for you. Exactly. Yeah. If it's realistic enough, the Da Vinci system has stereoscopic vision, has really mo- fine motor control, and it really optimizes for three fingers on each hand for yeah. index, middle, and thumb. Yep. And that's all it really does for gripping and for all the motions. Doesn't care about pinky or ring finger. Doesn't care about arm position. It's just those, those positions. And they're relative posed to each other. So that's actually probably mostly what you care about. And if you look at the way the DaVinci system set up, there's those kind of fine manipulators at the end. And then they're mounted on two or three axes mm-hmm. just to figure out their position in space. Yeah. Right. And if you can do that like that, you could do it just by optically sensing the person's hands. Yep. But you do want to give that feedback, I think, either phantom feedback just yep. by being really really good or by providing resistance on or, those or by or by buying this you know four million dollar vader egg vader egg yeah, yeah. The, the vader egg 3000 i'm sure you're gonna call it <laughs> this is better yet though because it's on the moon so yeah. as, a, as a product coming to you soon wherever anyone wants to deploy humanoid robots in adversarial environments the vader egg 4000 <laughs> is the primary way to build a, a highly dynamic UI, UX, for uh, for doing uh, complex, dexterous tasks. Like, what do you think the cost of this is going to be? I mean, maybe not $4 million, but depending on the dexterity you need, I mean, the Da Vinci's what? Like, it's surgically rated, so a million bucks each. Yep, somewhere in the two to three. Yeah. Especially because it has to work in space. Yeah. It's going to be hard to fix. There you go. Three, three 3.499 million dollars, ladies o- and gentlemen. Only if you call today. <laughs> only if you call. Our, our, our phone lines are live. All righty. So that being said, let's move on to our next subject. Today, we're going to talk about demos. And I, for one, have never had a demo go bad. I have never, ever, ever shown a robot to an investor, a member of the press, a customer, where everything just hasn't gone perfect. Stefan, I don't understand why you're claiming you've never done any demos. (laughs) (laughs) That is literally the only way such a statement would be true. (laughs) Yeah, I think we've both had demos go go all the way stupid in all sorts of ways. And I think there's a a couple of different ways that they can go stupid. There's the, the actual technical stuff of it just doesn't work. It doesn't, and especially when it's, it just doesn't work and we don't know why. There's the, how you handle hard stuff for people who don't even know what's going on. And yeah, then just general demo logistics. And demo logistics is one of my favorite ways that things go wrong, especially when you're testing large things. So if you were working on say a Roomba, you could do a demo in your bedroom. It could be really impressive. If for example, you want to do a demo on a class eight truck, you can do a little bit in a football field sized parking lot, but really you need like a couple hundred miles of, or at least a, a couple dozen miles worth of highway to, to do your demo on. And that's, that's where things get hard. One of my, one of my early favorite demo spots for, for my last company, 
it was before we had a truck, so we would rent get-arounds that were generally all Toyota Priuses. We're using a bunch of clamps, put our actuators on it. And then we'd go to this like abandoned parking lot in the peninsula where it was us drug dealers and amorous high school students. And we would remote control our Prius in, in circles with somebody sitting behind the wheel to see if the actuators and the antenna and the networking and stuff all worked. How did that not go wrong. <laughs> I think that's probably going to be a smaller list. My favorite part of it was that the mall security stopped caring about us relatively quickly and most, and like didn't really mind the drug dealers because they're mall cops and mostly went after those, those damn teens. Uh, <laughs> um, but like, we'd even like, we'd even like have to set up a generator and to run our like our crappy directional Wi-Fi antenna, the the setting up the actuators would be a good hour-long task. We'd drive out of range and get weird commands that would nearly put us into parked cars. All of that fun stuff. Yeah, there's there's a meta topic I wanted to chat about thinking about today's topic, which is test your remote control and emergency stop systems. (laughs) Be really solid about those. You know, be be absolutely sure that every layer of the code knows what to do if it receives an out-of-time command or an out-of-band command or e-stop is lost. Yeah. Because basically... A a little known fact about emergency stop buttons, if they don't work, they don't do a lot of good. Yeah, they're they're no longer an emergency stop button. They're more (laughs) like a stress relief ball at that point. (laughs) We sit and crunch it hoping that something will happen. So I'll tell tell one funny story to kick off. So at ClearPath Robotics, I had brought one of our larger vehicles, we would take it out to different events just to get some community outreach. And so we drive it out there off the back of a rental van and we put it in the field and I start testing around, making sure it's okay. And it's driving around in this big field. And then I decide, okay, it's time to bring it back. And I move the joystick to bring it back and it continues to go in the direction it was going. (laughs) And so I I say, oh, that's strange. And I move it a little bit more and it continues to go in the direction it's going. (laughs) And that's when I realized that the batteries on the joystick had kind of run down. (laughs) And so it had just, it, it filed into this funny state where it thought it was still okay, but it was just far enough beyond the range of these almost dead batteries that the vehicle just kept repeating the same command it got the last time. So here's this very large vehicle, autonomous vehicle. How, how large are we talking? Oh, it's ATV Roomba 700 car. pounds ATV. It's okay. ATV on steroids. Okay. There it is taking off into the brush <laughs> on the other end of this field. And so I start to run after it, holding the joystick out at arm's length in front of me, hoping that it will catch the radio signal as quickly as it can. And, and I, I managed to catch it just before it rolls into a ditch. You know that thing about how if you hold your car fob to your, your chin, exactly. it'll give you more range? Would yeah. that have helped you out? I didn't think of it at that moment. <laughs> I was mostly worried about flipping over this incredibly <laughs> heavy machine. So I was very happy when it got back in range. I had a, another early Starsky one. So we, we still did not have a truck, but we found a we found a friend of a friend who let us borrow one. And they they take it out for actual deliveries at night. So we were at this truck yard in Atlanta, or like an hour northwest of Atlanta. 
in the middle of the summer, which was very pleasant. So the the ambient temperature around us was like 105, 110 degrees. Everyone's sweating through everything they have constantly. Humidity was 99% yes. probably. <laughs> yeah. There were, I think I saw fish flying. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, and our system, you know, it was rough. So we'd essentially have to set up our whole mechatronic system every morning in whatever state the truck driver left it in the the night before, and then disassemble it at the end of every very long day. Reliably turning the whole thing on was, you know, a task. Um, But the fate, my favorite, and like, if we went to the wrong side of the truck yard, we'd immediately lose connectivity and we'd just keep driving. Test your e-stops, people. (laughs) But my, my favorite thing about the whole system was we had this like one little motor that could on the steering wheel and it was attached to basically this sharpened blade. We like got a, a, a plate of metal that was about like three inches wide by let's say a foot long and to make it fit on the wheel a little bit better. We sharpened off the edges of it. <laughs> so this, this blade would sit right in between your legs and swing wildly with a, with a tele operator. <laughs> yeah. If you've ever been interested in a second circumcision, it was the, the system for you. <laughs> and not only that, but since it was a billion degrees outside, <laughs> In between each attempt of trying to do our goal, our like Mechie EE guy, who's who's amazing, is out cruise, Isaac. We'd have to jump in the truck with with a bunch of ice cubes in a washcloth <laughs> to cool down the motors so that the motor didn't melt. So not only was this a swinging blade, it's a swinging super hot blade. Yes. Fantastic. Well, that's cauterizes at yeah, the same time. It solves the problem it creates. Yeah. Jesus. But I I think more than that, some of my favorite demos ever were where you had to explain to people who know nothing about robots that like robots don't just work the way you're supposed to. Oh, I have a great example of this one. So not my project, but I I was lucky enough to go to the DARPA Grand Challenge. Mm -hmm. So this is a humanoid one. You can find a great blooper reel on YouTube of the humanoids falling over. And there's a particular moment where they fall over where the initial step is they have to walk or drive this little buggy open a door, come in and do a bunch of tool tasks. This is supposed to be kind of guided autonomy where the whole idea is that you, your humans can Was kind this of, the final stage the robots got to? Yeah, well, just actually one robot got through the whole thing. Amazing, right? Like, What team was that? I think it might have been Cased. Okay. I, I forget, but... but uh, That's amazing. Yeah. And, there's I, a, and I imagine the military people who set this up are like, all right, we'll start off with something easy. Yeah, exactly. You know, swing a couple of hammers, use a saw, maybe you operate guys, a screwdriver. We, we maybe have to put a link in our show notes <laughs> yeah. or something because the blooper reel is fantastic. There's a bunch of atlases there. This is when yeah. Atlas was new from DARPA, from Boston Dynamics. But the, the funny, the really funny note was I realized that a lot of these robots were collapsing right as they entered the door. And so I talked to the organizers uh, and I tried to ask what the problem was. And, and what happened was the organizers had this kind of radio backpack on the robots. And this radio backpack was to ensure that the organizers knew how much data was going back and forth between the robot and the operation station so that the teams couldn't just offload all their compute off robot yeah. and just do it that way. And it was supposed to limit to one megabit a second when they entered the door. 
And the organizers made a mistake, and I forget what it was, but I think they loaded it to 0.1 megabit per second. <laughs> and so the robots would open the door and immediately lose 90% of their bandwidth. And their control loops would just go crazy, and they'd just fall over. <laughs> so I, I might have the details somewhat wrong, but it was along that line of, like, basically these backpacks and a small programming error just messed up so many That the reminds teams. me of the DARPA Grand Challenge for Autonomy with Anthony Lewandowski's Ghost Rider. Yeah. Yep. Where everyone else made a car that was bad at driving and autonomous. And Lewandowski was like, you know, screw that. I'm going to make a motorcycle. It's going to be cooler. They started the test and forgot to turn the gyroscope on and just immediately fell over. It just immediately <laughs> ran over. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So so the meta, the meta thing here is really, again, to reiterate a third time, really test your teleop and e-stops. Well, I mean, I don't as, even just as, mean, I don't even think it's just that. I think it's the part of the challenge with a robot is there's so many layers of what can go wrong. Yeah. That like, honestly, screw e-stops. Like for for the DARPA Grin challenge thing and for the, the Ghost Rider thing, it's like practice your processes to turn yeah. the system on. Yeah, exactly. Like, Start from first principles. Like, like have a paper list and that you like force some way too qualified person to do as a checklist where they have to initial what they've done and what they haven't done. Where one part is like, turn the gyroscope on. Yeah. Cause yeah. like, frankly, like that's, that's even, that's a stupider and harder problem than writing a better piece of code to do it. Yeah. There's, there's a good book about this, the checklist manifesto. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of it basically is that even surgeons and other very, very intelligent people can start to forget things when they're not forced to go through a checklist, mm -hmm. when there's a very complicated process. And so, yeah, having a checklist to but go through. But robots are so simple. Why would they need complicated processes? Oh, I wish. I wish. <laughs> I, I would, my poof factor would be much lower if I didn't have to worry about <laughs> robots quite as much. Checklisting, testing, yeah. and, and, and testing your checklist and is part I, of and, your and, testing. And I also, I mean, like, frankly, even a dry run of that DARPA humanoid task where they're like, oh, why is everyone falling here? Oh, it's not because they suck. It's because like we set this parameter the wrong way. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's a lot of that kind of being systematic in your testing and, and very much kind of doing the scientific method of setting out, maybe not so formally, but set it with a thesis you want to test. Yep. And make sure that you're counting for, is this just a placebo effect? Is this just I mean, I actually, my sample size I big enough? I actually feel like the, the scientific method's a great comparison to a lot of this. Like we, we've had people who are like, well, why can't we go do a big demo? This thing worked three months ago. We did a bunch of improvements on the hardware. Why can't we just go do the same thing that it used to be able to do? And it's, you changed 45 variables and you want us to figure out if it still works. Yeah. Which one of these is now going wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully every time you moved anything with the hardware, it was just better. That's uncommon. Has somebody, has somebody who pulls out a lot of hair over their 3D printer every time I have to turn it on. Even relatively simple machines need recalibration constantly. Yeah. Constantly. So another, another one of my favorite MO stories ever. So a hard thing with demoing a big robot is when the big robot messes up, it's actually kind of scary. Terrifying. And the more that you know about how it works, the scarier it is. This is why I don't trust Tesla's autopilot. <laughs> like a, a problem that I learned a very, probably too late in Starscape is if it did a rather sudden correction of its lane position, aka a swerve, I shouldn't immediately flinch and look around in a panicked state because the member of the press or the investor or who the whoever probably didn't even notice. 
Whereas I knew, uh-oh, is it jumping to another lane last minute without uh, without us having any understanding of it? Yeah, it's, again, rote testing so that you get comfortable with that sort of thing yep. and you understand the limits of it. Oh, for sure. So with Polymath, we've had some interesting testing things. Like when we when we first had our tra- our test tractor set up, we, we did a test where we were a little overconfident, didn't have anyone in the vehicle, and then immediately set it off to drive towards towards a bunch of fuel. We we learned how to make sure our e-stop was working from that. But even more than that, our, our kind of standard demo at Polymath, as as you know, is we we're constantly letting other people drive our robot. And that's had, you know, a number of impacts. <laughs> the worst is, you know, there was one time when we were at an event and we were talking to a couple of people who had equity stakes in our company, including a rather successful autonomy founder. And I'm talking to the rather successful autonomy founder and one of the other people who has an equity stake in our company decided to just like try out if he could drive into a fence without telling us, without, you know, I wasn't watching an e-stop. We had an intern somewhere else watching the e-stop. Just, you know, went for it. See what would happen. Thankfully, we did have a geofence that worked. But I, I think the the biggest thing is by doing a large number of demos, we've gotten our system stable. Yeah, yeah. Like early on, I felt like I was a jerk asking you for a demo once a day or three times a week. And then they all kind of worked. So now I ask for a demo basically every time I have a meeting. Use use engineering laziness against them. Yep. Where basically if you force them to do something hard a bunch, they'll eventually make it easier. Or, you know, just buy a system that works rather reliably and focus on the valuable stuff. And yeah. Polymath could be that system for you. So with that little commercial, Ilya, what are we talking about next week? We have a TBD for next week on the schedule, <laughs> as sometimes, most of the time, practically all the time happens. We will find out what we're talking about next week. That sounds good. Well, thank you all for, for listening to us talk about demos and, and, and moon robots again. Have a great week. See you next time.